Hey, Democracy and Color listeners, it's Amy Allison here. I hope you're all enjoying the beginnings of springtime. We have a lot of cooking over here, and I can't wait to share it with you. But in the meantime, I wanted to tell you about another podcast that I highly recommend. My good friend Ashanti Golar now hosts The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics, a show about women of color changing the face of politics, where you can find insightful interviews, roundtable discussions, and advice on being a woman of color in the political sphere. I was so thrilled to join her on a recent episode and eager to share the conversation with all of you. If you like the show, head on over to the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics podcast wherever you listen and subscribe. Episodes drop every Monday. Now, here's the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. I'm Ashanti Golar, the founder of the Brown Girl's Guide and the political director for Emerge America. Last episode, we heard from my girl crush, Stacey Abrams. If you missed it, check it out. Also, don't forget to pick up a copy of Lead from the Outside, How to Build Your Future and Make Real Change, a reprint of her previous book, Minority Leader. Today, I'm excited to talk to my good friend, Amy Allison. Amy is the president of Democracy in Color, an organization that focuses on race, politics, and the new American majority that work to elect some people that you may know, such as President Barack Obama, Senator Cory Booker, Senator Kamala Harris, and other leaders who carry a social justice agenda. She is also not new to the podcast world, as she is the host of the Democracy in Color podcast. She was raised in Oregon, she was in the military, and she comes from a mixed-race background. For her, being involved in politics was about social justice and the work that she could do in Oakland and across the country to get people to focus on what does social justice mean, particularly what does it mean for women of color. She has become a force in recent years, mobilizing women of color around elections through her work with Get Information with Stacey Abrams and now She the People. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. Very excited to chat with you. We're thrilled. Thank you so much for having me. Wait, am I one of the first guests? You are. You're just so important to the Women of Color movement. You're important to me. So I absolutely just had to chat with you. Oh, you're so sweet. (laughs) All righty. So first, what made you get into politics? When did you get the bug? Well, I think I was sort of born with the bug. I was born on election day in 1969. Stop! And I I think about my parents uh, meeting at Oregon State, my dad being a PhD candidate, my mom being a a young undergrad, my dad white, my mom black, and and then falling in love and, and having me right there in Oregon in a time when it wasn't even, uh, it was barely legal for people across race to get married. And Oregon had its own racist past in terms of going, coming as a state into the union, as a white supremacist state. I mean, I could go into it, but I was born into that. But I was also born in, into, I don't know, a time where people were thinking, big and bold about how to evolve our country and democracy, the civil rights movement, uh, the consciousness raising. So I feel like politics got very early on into my blood, but it really wasn't into until 
I was in college where I had already been in the military. I joined at 17 as an enlisted person. I was doing my military uh, training drills as a reservist at the same time, uh, attending undergrad studies at Stanford, studying King and Gandhi and Reconstruction, which is the part of our history where there was a very conscious effort to overcome the evils and trauma of slavery, excluding millions of black people from their rights as citizens. And I became obsessed with that time in our history and started running for office on campus. And I guess uh, that just started a lot. I hope the women are taking notes because that's a different background. What some people would say is like a non-traditional background for a woman to come into politics because there's just this notion that you have to come from a strong political family. You have to have all of this knowledge and your story is just so unique and great. I just love it. Thank you. And I also didn't realize that all the windy paths you know, joining the military and then, you know, uh, being a student activist, being becoming an anti-war activist and a teacher and all the different things, it never made sense looking forward. It was always like I was just following my heart. It only made sense looking back. And the through line for me, me being 50 this year, from the 17-year-old girl to the 50-year-old woman, is I've always had this overwhelming need, a uh, call to serve. And I was always a person who took responsibility uh, for things and people. And I was a person who imagined not what, what it was, what I saw around me, what could be. And I always felt whole and complete when everyone was there. I think maybe because I'm biracial myself and live in a multiracial family, um, I chose Oakland as my home because everyone is here. We're all together in every aspect of life. But multiculturalism became kind of like a religion to me um, and it's an extension of my politics so I always think you know you, you think about how you get involved in politics for me it started by uh, my sensibility about and my vision for people coming together across difference and so that in a way that's bigger than election day that's a sense of the kind of world that I want to be part of and so I guess it's possible for me to have that kind of dream and background and anyway, be prepared, really in some ways uniquely prepared for this moment. Trump's been in office a couple of years. Uh, all the, the terror and the attacks on vulnerable communities that we're hearing revive themselves have never really gone away. And they go back so many, so long in our history. And I think for for people like me and actually people like you who have a heart for people who are different and have a compassion for their vulnerable, we are uniquely prepared to be political leaders in this moment. Oh, I love that so much. Just talking about the call to serve. That is just so strong and powerful. And I just love how you are unapologetically outspoken when it comes to communities of color, particularly women of color. I remember thinking back to Netroots Nation last year, and you just gave this fiery and passion speech. I first want to give my great thanks to Netroots Nation for inviting About me. women of color are just not your voters. We're great voters, but we're so much more, and you can't ignore us. Georgia is also a state where 42% of the registered Democrats are black women. 
and boy, did that strategy deliver in the primary. And you Our just recently had a letter to the editor in the New York Times, and it is so great. And my favorite line is, prominent Democrats can no longer reap the benefits of winning elections on the backs of women of color while diminishing their power. Those are some words right there. That is a word right there. Like, let's let's talk about that and your work with democracy and color. Uh, I wrote that in response to a columnist who suggested that the way Democrats, who, who that's the party most women of color are in. Most of us, in fact, we're the most likely group to vote for the Democrats and, um, who are running. And he dared suggest that the way to win in 2020 is to win back both Trump voters and moderate voters to focus on majority white states, to focus on the Midwest, which, by the way, there are several Midwest states from almost majority people of color have sizable communities there. So that's a way of diminishing who we are and where we are in this country. And I took uh, deep offense at uh, those who keep struggling and striving for the good old days of the Democrats could ignore, um, particularly black women. And, uh, you know, I founded Chief the People uh, last year because uh, I knew that for us after 2016, nothing is going to be the same. That we have to be acknowledged as uh, the cornerstone of the progressive vote in this country. And we're the best organizers on the ground in swing states like Georgia, Florida, Texas, Arizona, states that Trump won. And we have this great, amazing political vision that imagines a politics infused love and humanity and imagines a country where people belong. I say all of those reasons. Look, buddy. <laughs> you and everyone like you who tries to erase us, you will not do that. And um, my message for Democrats, the, the columnists and the so-called experts, the leaders, not only just Democratic Party leaders, the donors, uh, people who sit uh, on pots of money, the political directors, uh, the people like 538 dude who, who, you know, they shape public opinion about politics, but they also tell the public who they think is important. Mm. So when I read that, I said, I'm going to write a letter to the editor, and, and I'm really glad that they published it. And by the way, for any women of color who are listening to this right now, there are not enough of us writing things like the letter to the editor. If I might di digress for a moment about being heard. Yes, yes. Because I do this with lots of women in my life whose voice absolutely has to get out there. If you see something and want to address it, writing a letter to the editor is 300 words and you submit it online. Often the editors, particularly when you give your background, they will do a light edit, but if they accept it in the New York Times, it goes online and it goes, a lot of them go in print. Yes, and I loved it because it still showed how something so simple had an impact to hear from a woman of color saying, no, sir, you got it wrong. This is not how you win. We deserve that same consideration that you want to give to everyone else. Yeah. It's not just the same consideration. What I'm suggesting is even I'm pushing it further. I'm saying we deserve top billing yes. for the Democratic Party strategy to win in 2020. And here's why. 
you know, there's not one thing that uh, women of color in terms of uh, our politics have to acknowledge is up until now, there hasn't been we haven't been polled in uh, uh, pre-polling during campaigns, exit polling. We're hardly we're hardly asked how we voted and what, you know, we're not particularly we're covered in the media. And part of what a big part of what she the people is aiming to do was to work both in background and directly help shape stories. Well, I hired my own researchers, and we pulled data from Catalyst specifically about women of color. Uh, one thing that we found out was women of color are 88% likely to vote for Democrats versus white women who are 48% and white men who are, who are less or near, near, thir- near just under 40%. So our argument is an investment in engaging registering, lifting up our leadership, investing in our our strategists and people who are doing uh, voter engagement on the ground, that's a good bet. If you center your campaigning on white voters, eh, you could get a 50-50. But we, it's, it's women of color, I believe, are leading the inclusive multiracial coalition that will absolutely be required to be in place and strong to win, beat Trump in 2020, not just to elect a bunch of tired Democrats, but to elect people who are really reflecting our political hopes and dreams. So that is what, that is the mission. Here at the BGG, we're all about people power movements. Small dollar donors can have a huge impact on the direction of the country. ActBlue helps to put power in the hands of those people by making online giving easy and secure for grassroots supporters. ActBlue's simple but powerful digital fundraising tools enable campaigns and organizations of all sizes to flourish, from local nonprofits to presidential candidates. ActBlue is both a nonprofit and a tech organization. Its tools are rigorously A-B tested, automatically mobile optimized and constantly improved so candidates up and down the ballot know they're working with the best special thanks to act blue for their support of this first season of the brown girl's guide to politics act blue is responsible for the content of this advertising You just hit on so many great things. Uh, One of the things I want to move back to is when you talked about the Midwest and how so many of these states do have sizable communities of color. And after the 2016 election, we just saw so many people saying Black people didn't vote out, Latinos didn't turn out, young people didn't turn out. And I got so angry at a lot of these articles because they failed to mention that we no longer had the full protection of the Voting Rights Act and how that had a strong impact on people being able to vote. The stories of people who did have the new proper ID and being turned away, changing polling locations, shutting down early voting locations, all of those disproportionately impact people of color, young people, and seniors. And I know you are doing a lot of work now around voting rights, like ahead of 2020, because if we don't have this together, it could again be another detriment to what our political elections look like. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it's purposeful. I just want to acknowledge you as an organizer um, and leader of Power Rising. That conference, which brought together, what, was it 2,000 Black women? There was a lot, yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. And being on that panel with on voting rights, 
was an honor. And I will just say, I was on the, I was on the panel with a woman that was on the DNC, an elected uh, representative right there in uh, yeah. Louisiana. Miss Karen Carter-Peterson, vice chair of the DNC. That's right. With, uh, with uh, Melanie Campbell. And I'm trying to think of who else was on that panel. There were just superstars on the panel. And then me. And then uh, <laughs> we started talking about voting rights. In the audience, there were experts on voting rights from places like uh, North Carolina, where the GOP candidate hired a consultant that cheated his way to a fake victory, and that election result was thrown out. We had the woman on the ground, black woman, who was uh, leading efforts to make sure that people had their proper voting rights in in, uh, North Carolina, in Mississippi, in Georgia, in Florida. And I was thinking, here I am, I'm supposed to be standing on a dais or something, expounding on my expertise and any one of the women in that room could have been schooling the rest of us and and here's the here's the thing amongst black women we are leading the nation's top voting protection efforts and particularly um for the lawyers committee on civil rights the woman who was there um who uh is part of a group that um challenges voter suppression in lots of states she in particular was saying look legal challenges take years meanwhile uh i live in california we're going to start voting in less than 11 months we don't have time in the same the, the same time frame and so there were a number of of things that were surfaced in that conversation that were immediate things that women of color can do in their own communities one is volunteer to be a poll worker because that's the front line like you were saying another is work to get appointed on these election commissions at the county election commissions. A uh, third is volunteering for organizations like New Georgia Project. Uh, Inse Ufot, the head of New Georgia Project, was one of the other panelists. And she has a statewide effort to double, you know, double and triple check people registration because the state of Georgia and the secretary of state had been t- taking people off the rolls so that they weren't weren't listed as registered. So there are, uh, I know from that room, black women who are leading these phenomenal efforts and we're gonna need to, um, as a country and as a movement, invest deeply in these these women and these expertise, uh, their expertise in in these swing states so that we can win. So Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan is really important. These are states where, um, they are purple states where people of color are the thinnest margin of uh, victory and that we need to actually reclaim those states going into uh, 2020. Earlier, you were talking about polling. We need more women of color in that area. And as the campaign managers, the press secretaries, the fundraisers, for those who do want to work in politics or support women of color who are involved, there's just such an array of things that women of color can do that I think they don't know exist. Yeah. And, you know, and on top of it, we need women of color to run and be leaders in protecting voting rights. So, for example, the first time I met Nina Turner, which is she's one of the top leaders of the progressive movement. She, she runs for Revolution, which was an organization that came out of Sanders campaign. And she's often in her own right. She was she was in the state legislature in, in Ohio and uh, at Cleveland and ran for secretary of state in Ohio after all the shenanigans in 2014. And I called her, and I call her now, the great defender of voting rights. She's one of our national leaders where we need um, women of color who are gonna dedicate themselves 
to protecting voting rights, to actually run uh, for the, some of these high uh, offices. And statewide, it's a it's a barrier. Nina didn't didn't uh, get over uh, the hurdle in terms of Ohio, but her running kind of changed a lot. She was able to do things like when they the incumbent secretary of state eliminated eliminated souls to the polls, which was keeping um, voting open on Sunday. And churches, particularly black churches, would organize in buses and and bring their parishioners to go vote. And so they realized, hey, that that's that's allowing black people to have more of a political voice. So they tried to shut that down. And uh, Nina Turner's campaign opened that back up. And I, I think the, the more that we can continue to claim our leadership and our space, you know, the better. We're not just activists. We're actually, you know, elected leaders. We're actually leaders in the organizations and, as well as uh, volunteers. So there's lots of roles that we can play. You mentioned Nina Turner running for office. You are just such a big supporter of women of color running for office. You have run for office yourself. And I just think it's great how you're always out there uplifting other women of color because one of the notions that I definitely want to dispel on this podcast is people like to say, well, women of color don't support other women of color. And that is just not true. And we've interviewed Stacey Abrams for the podcast and we talked about the amazing response that she got at Power Rising from women just wanting to see her run for president, for Senate. And I think it's very important for us to acknowledge that women of color do run for office. And when they do run for office, they just have this broad network of support from women of color, but also non-women of color, non-people of color, because we can actually pull together those multi-racial coalitions that you talk about all the time. That's right. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes from like a deep belief. And I know we, you and I share that because we, the work that we do, but this deep belief that we can lift each other up. There's plenty of space for excellence um, to support each other. And it's never a zero sum game. Mm. Like when when uh, another woman of color wins and she has a heart for justice, I want her to have as much space and support as uh, as she needs in order to be fully herself. And in this work, I truly believe all the experience I've had has prepared me for this moment, but I would not be able to do the work that I do without um a sister circle, a tight group of women of color who are my supporters, who love me no matter what. And it's it's okay if I fail. I try some stuff. I, I have these bold notions, and sometimes I fall on my face. I mean, when I ran for office 12 years ago, I quit my corporate job, and I worked 80, 90 hours a week so I could do my best. And when I lost by a few hundred votes, I basically was a collapse in a puddle. And I was like, how do I... Uh, how do I move on from this? Because it's city council. <laughs> I should be able to win a city council in, in a in a mid-sized American city like Oakland, like the city I love. And in that first race, the only reason I could live to have a career where I uplift is because the women of color around me embraced me, you know, lifted me up, offered me opportunities, encouraged my writing. And as I found my way to, you know, the next chapter of my life, I found that having that circle of, of women around me and I have a book club. I have something called, you know, the chicks, the awesome chicks. We meet early morning on Zoom. My book club's been around for 16 years. We 
Uh, we don't really talk about books. We just <laughs> <laughs> kind of like my book club. <laughs> the table, hey, what's your high? What are your highs and lows? And how do you feel? And how, you know, and when I go out and, and try something, that there's support, and we all support each other. And I think just in my personal life as well as my like, broad political life, that's that's who I want to be in the world. So you mentioned before, She the People, and I want to talk about that. I'm just honored to even be a part of your brainchild, this amazing, just amazing thing that you have done that no one has done before. You had the She the People Summit last year in San Francisco. Room was packed. It sold out. People wanted more. And now you're giving them more with another historic trailblazing event, the She the People Presidential Forum the first presidential forum ever focused on women of color that is happening in Houston, Texas. Tell us all about it. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I thought, okay, what is the biggest thing that we think would make, put us front and center for the nation, tell a new story about women of color, establish our political voice and power? We would like this very crowded field, at least some of the candidates, to address us directly and talk about our issues to us because we are the core of the vote that they need to win. And the, that's the carrot. The stick is if you don't make your case and you don't speak to women of color, then you're not going to get through the primary process because you need mm-hmm. us. You need us badly. Um, and you need our support. You need us as organizers and as donors and as voters and any of those candidates uh, across race and, and gender, they all need to speak to us. So the presidential forum at Texas Southern is the manifestation of that dream. It says, hey, we're coming into our own. It's held uh, April 24th of this year, so it's you know, about a month away. Um, so it gives me a little bit of, you know, spastic calling a little <laughs> It's such a big deal. And when I talked to a USA Today reporter about it, uh, it was actually on the front page about black women, you know, claiming their political space for 2020. She asked me about the presidential forum, and I said, look, let me tell you why it's in Texas. Texas is the big prize. Texas, because of organizing on the ground, and people credit Beto O'Rourke, and he was a great candidate, but the organizing on the ground, uh, led by black and brown women, like in the Texas Organizing Project and other groups, was the reason that now it's 3% from flipping, 3% vote gap from, from flipping. It's in Houston because back in 1977, Houston was the place for the first and only National Women's Convention where a group of black women came amongst thousands and thousands of largely white uh, women who were organizing for a women's agenda. And they said, we read your agenda, but it's not justice oriented enough. Here is our plan. Mm-hmm. And the Latina and the Native and the Asian American women who were there um, in 1977 at that event, they saw the Black women's plan and they joined it and said, this is actually our plan. What do we call ourselves? Women of color. That was the first time that term women of color was used in a political context right there in Houston. And um, uh, Texas Southern as the largest public HBCU in Texas, because that's the home of Barbara Jordan. Barbara Jordan was uh, black, gay, disabled, and like an elected congresswoman when there weren't very many. Um, and she was she was such a leader and respected by people of both parties. And I just think in her name and her legacy, we're holding this this event. And it, 
I'm just, just talking about it gives me, gives me the chills. We're going to have 1,700 women of color. I thought it was going to be mostly Texas women. Turns out women are coming from all over to be there as part of history. And we'll have the can- candidates, uh, a set of candidates, talk to us specifically about a range of issues. And because the Democratic National Committee has rules about um, non-DNC-sponsored events, ours is called a forum, and we're going to talk to the candidates one at a time. And my argument is, just make your case. Make your case to women of color. This is not a gotcha kind of thing. This is early on in the presidential cycle where we, you have an opportunity to speak to people that you would not normally have access to. And so that's the forum. I'm, and if it, by the way, if anyone wants to register, we had a donor that picked up the cost of tickets. And so uh, I, I do not want the, the cost of tickets to be a barrier for any woman of color who wants to be in that room, young or old or any, any of us in the community of women of color uh, are welcome to be in that room. I keep saying I love it, but I do. I love it so much. And then for our sisters who aren't able to attend, there's still ways for them to watch because that's how amazing and inclusive you are. They will still be able to participate. Yeah, we're ha- we're going to have a live stream so that people can watch. And it's uh, 1 to 4 Central Time on a Wednesday. Some people are at work. Uh, so we'll have, but there's a lot of ways for people to uh, participate. We want everyone to be part of it. And this is, again, a historic election cycle. I feel that every year is becoming historic, but because we have so many women who are running for president for the 2020 cycle, what are your thoughts on that? How does that make you feel? It makes me feel great. I mean, <laughs> it makes me feel great, but it also... Uh, I have never thought that it was enough for us to have an essentialist argument as women of color. Elect women, elect women of color. My thing is elect women of color for what? We want to create a society with love and justice and belonging and democracy. And so because we care about economic, social and racial justice, because we happen to be the people who are on the bottom of every measure who are closest to the pain, but we also have the brilliance and strategy to be the solution for this country. So, you know, I feel like having multiple women in the race is a good opportunity for us to not fall in essentialism and just say, well, we just want more women. To really dig into what do you want to do as the leader of this country? What is it that, who are you, whose water are you gonna carry? As my minister when I was growing up used to say, whose water are you gonna carry? Who's the priority? What is your plan? And we have, we are at this unique moment. And now we're back to reconstruction, right after the civil war and the end of slavery. All of these questions about whose vote is protected, who gets to participate, who belongs, all the questions about migrants and immigrants, uh, ICE going and raiding people and that, all these questions about uh, education, who, you know, we just, as we're talking, uh, the scandal broke about rich people cheating, get their kids into Ivy League schools, while, um, you know, a black mother still is in jail for using a different address to try to get her child into a better public school or just an adequate public school. So we have these issues that, uh, you know, challenge us every day. We can ask uh, the, the women and the men. And I really think as women of color, we're sophisticated politically. We understand um, in a way that a lot of establishment political people don't. We understand that this country 
is fast becoming a, it's multiracial, multimodem. There's no minority and there's no majority. And that uh, if somebody is a different gendered or different races, they're going to need to be able to speak authentically and credibly to people in other groups. This is a great test. If a white woman is running for president and she cannot speak authentically and credibly to issues of racial justice, and she doesn't understand that her base, her strongest voting base are women of color, she's going to fall because that's what happened to Clinton. And so, uh, you know, that's the challenge for Klobuchar. That's the challenge for Warren and, and uh, Gillibrand. They're going to have to figure out it's not enough to fall back on I'm female. Our, our standards are higher than that as women of color, and they, and they really should be. It should be about uh, the issues and what's the solution. And to the extent that we can, both and she, the people, and and in our conversations can continue that, uh, I think we're going to be in a stronger position long term politically. Because we can't stay in a place where, like, oh, the first, our first, you know, Native woman, our first, you know, we can't continue doing that. It's like, you know, yeah, Deb Holland was the first Native woman to be elected to Congress. What did she do? She immediately started advocating for the Native community and the tragedy of, of Native women mm-hmm. uh, being the, the highest in terms of the percentage of victims of domestic violence and unsolved murders. And she actually is legislating. She's doing what she promised she was going to do. And that's what we're looking for. So we have one last question for you, Amy. What advice do you have for the brown girls that are listening that are saying, I want to be just like her? (laughs) uh, It took me a long time, uh, like most of my career, actually, to step fully into my fierce and loving leadership that I am recognizing that I am 100% uniquely prepared and ready. And my advice is to do the things in your life that are pure expressions of who you are. Uh, There has never been before, and there will never be after you're gone. You, you're uniquely, you're uniquely here in this world, and you have a mission. And part of what a big central part of what we're here to do is for us to discover and the way that we discover that is by spending your time spending our thoughts spending our money uh, and choosing to be around people who help you be authentically you and if i can give that offer that advice now that i'm moving into the anti-stage anti-phase if i can give that advice um don't contour yourself to be anything it's really easy as women of color to think okay we're gonna have to be different in some way in order to be accepted or respected or listened to that that it doesn't have to be that way now um and especially look for love and support um in those who are closest uh, for people who who see and encourage you to be the most authentic of you you can be. And everything comes from that. Oh, that is so beautiful, so powerful. Thank you so much. Amy Allison, president of Democracy in Color, founder of She the People, April 24th in Houston, Texas. Please make sure you go to the She the People website to sign up for updates on how you can watch this historic forum that is going to happen and is created for us by us. Thank you, Amy. 
Thank you. You're the greatest, Ashanti. You're the best. One of the biggest things I got out of my conversation with Amy is the fact that even though women of color are very powerful in politics, how are we owning our power? We are the biggest voting bloc in the country. We can swing elections. Candidates want our support. But how are we, as women of color, mobilizing our efforts? How are we showing up for one another? How are we making our voices heard collectively across the country? It's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about what she's doing with She the People, and I hope that you will definitely tune in to watch the She the People Forum, which will be live stream from their Facebook, or if you can travel to Houston, Texas, that you will be there in person to hear how the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates plan to show up and fight for women of color. And the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics will be on the ground from the forum, bringing you the latest news and updates. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. Stay tuned for next week when I talk with Deb Holland, one of the first Native American women elected to Congress. You can keep track of what we're doing on our social media handles. We are at the BG Guide on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find out more about what Wonder Media Network is up to on Instagram at WMN media and on Twitter at WMN Media.